0: Good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Have you ever had a day where you just wish you could, like, press the redo button? About 2 o'clock this afternoon, I found myself wishing I could redo the day. Um, It was a half day for my kids, so, you know, there's that, Um, which was super. They've got to do field day, which is so cool for them. Um, But then they were, like, all kinds of hyped up when they got home this afternoon, and um, so we got them situated and taken care of, and then I was ironing, and um, I had unplugged the iron, and I set it on the um, washing machine, and I was on the phone with Eric, so I had the phone like this, and I was reaching down to pick up um, a, ba- a laundry basket, and my elbow, my arm, back straight into the iron. Um, so I don't think I'm going to wince tonight, but if I do, like... The iron is the culprit. Have you ever done that? I'm like, okay, if we could just redo this day. Um, Maybe you had some days where you just wish you could like redo it and it's only 1030. That's when you know you've had a doozy of a morning, right? Um, where you think like, okay, this day did not start out, where we're going to just rewind, when we can all wake up on the right side of the bed on time, not pressing the snooze button six times, everybody out the door happy with shoes on, um, not forgetting backpacks, lunch boxes, or water bottles, you know, where we have everything in place. Um, We, all of us would have days like that. Maybe you've had seasons of life like that, where you just wish Man, if I could just be done with this season. This season has been one challenge after another, one challenge after the next, after the next. We're looking for something new. Well, last week in our study, in our large group time, we found Noah and his family where the floodwaters have receded, right? Right? The floodwaters have started coming down, and they are standing on the edge of something new. There's evidence of dry land. And last week, Mom mentioned um, that though well-intentioned, sometimes children's books leave us misinformed with our understanding of Noah, the story of Noah and the ark. Um, our, in our mind, we have this image of Noah and his family and the scene that they would have exited off the ark from and what would have met them, where they would have walked off the ark and there was blue skies, and the birds are chirping, and the animals are romping around, and Noah and his family are doing a little dance around the ground, green lush trees, right? And we kind of have this mindset that like it was a place of another paradise, right? But in reality, that's not what met them. What met them off of the ark and this new land was a scene of total and complete destruction, There were evidences of God's complete judgment on the earth. And that's what met them when they came off of the ark. Death and desolation and signs of God's judgment. Well, some of you after Hurricane Irma know what this looks like when floodwaters recede. um, Where your homes, you experience flooding in your homes. And when the floodwaters went down finally, what you were left with was moldy, walls, you were mildewed um, items and objects in your home, and some of your homes even had to be completely leveled. When the floodwaters receive, what are we looking for? Many of us want to look for a fresh beginning, a new start, something maybe you have craved for. Maybe you did not experience a physical flood, but maybe instead you experienced and you have endured a heartache and loss in other ways. Um, What do you do when the floodwaters come and they go and you're surrounded with what's left? Well, God gives us and he offers us a new start, newness of life and rest and renewal. And here we have Noah and his family standing at the door of the ark on the precipice of a new life. And so what do they do? How do they act and how do they react? So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 8 and we will get started And we will see what was their first act upon exiting the ark. As they were met with the scene of devastation and destruction, what did they do? We're going to unpack these passages today. And we're just going to walk through the remainder verses of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9. But Let's read verses 20 through 22 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Well, upon Noah exiting the ark, their first act was to consecrate this new earth. And the first thing he did, we might have expected Noah to finally get off the ship after spending over a year on a boat. We might have expected him to like lay down and like kiss the ground, right? Land. It's here. But he doesn't. The first thing he does, Noah's first response was worship. That was his reaction upon exiting the ark. His first thing he does is worship God. And when God brings you and I to the other side of a trial, to the other side of the waters, that our first response also should be worship. It's not merely a giving thanks, though I'm sure that was involved in what he did. There was more to Noah's act of worship than just giving thanks. Noah, his worship of God was purposeful, in its dedication. It was purposeful in its dedication. Do you know this is the first place in scripture where we read of an altar being built before God? Now we know, we've read that sacrifices were given to God, but we not we do not read of altars being established before that. Here, he purposed to set aside a time and a place to honor God. Worship was Noah's reflex where he seeks to commit this new earth to the glory of the Lord. And this worship of God was an act of consecration, of setting it aside for God's purposes. You know, there's just as a side note, when you and I begin... A new season of life. When we find ourselves maybe in a new home, or you're um, at a new job, or in a new relationship, um, it is so right and so good to consecrate that to the Lord, to set it aside for God's purposes and glory. I remember when Eric and um, Eric and I got engaged. He proposed to me um, at our church where we were serving in Louisville, Kentucky. And at the time, the church, and that was where we had gotten to know each other, was through serving together um, at our church there at Highview Baptist Church. And at the time, our church was building a new worship center, so he got permission to go onto the construction site, and he figured out where the aisle would be. So he lined the aisle with candles and rose petals, and he figured out, um, and he and his buddies, they, I think they just pulled a bunch of construction equipment over and like threw a tablecloth over it, and made like an altar before the Lord. But I remember after he proposed to me and he asked me to marry him and I said, yes, you know, here we are. Um, I remember him saying, I want us to pray together and I want us to commit our family to the Lord because as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. What about you and your house, whether it be a physical structure, whether it be the family in your home, are you consecrated and consecrating that job, that workplace to being done to see God's purposes lived out, to see his glory displayed in that. Well, that is what Noah and his family do here. We also see that his worship of God was generous in its offering. We read that Noah offered some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird to the Lord. He was not stingy. Now, keep in mind, They are given the job now. They have to repopulate the earth. I might have understood in a practical sense, like, okay, we need to hold back some, because we've, you know, the the plan of repopulation is not an easy thing. So we need to hold on to some of these birds here, Lord. Surely you understand, right? But rather, he doesn't do that. He's not stingy, and he doesn't hold it back from God. He generously gives it to the Lord. There, you know, for us in our church. We are in a season where we're being called to this kind of giving, generous, no-holding-back kind of giving. And this past weekend, in the service, pastor, at the end of his sermon, um, mentioned 2 Corinthians 9. And this is a principle that Noah seemed to understand even before uh, the words were penned in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10 says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply And multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is an understanding that not only do what we sow, we will reap, but it's the understanding that what we sow, God will multiply. And Noah seemed to understand that principle where he held nothing back from the Lord. But he said, God, here it is. In worship to you, I give it. Do we have that kind of heart where we say, Lord, though what I have is not much, here, what I do have, I offer to you, Lord. Take and use for your purposes. But we see his offering, his worship of God was generous. But not only that, it was complete in its devotion. His worship of God was complete in his devotion. We read that he gave a burnt offering to the Lord. Well, a burnt offering, there is no halfway with a burnt offering because burnt offerings were one that signified total and complete surrender because the offering that was placed on the altar there was completely consumed. It was completely burnt up. Later in Levitical law, We read that a burnt offering is one where the sacrifice was completely consumed on the altar. And this picture of Noah and his dedication to the Lord was total and complete, 100% surrender before God. Well, his also, and there was not only that, but his worship of God was also a humble recognition of repentance. A humble recognition of repentance Though we read the explanation of the sin offering later in Scripture, we see that the sin offering is implied here. Noah had seen the devastation of judgment. He knew it, and he knew that he deserved it. He knew that he was deserving of the judgment of God. And here, though he was a man who had walked with God, he knew he was still a sinner. And there was a recognition of his personal sinfulness here and the need for payment to be made for that sin. This is what we call atonement. You see, God, we read, that was pleased with this kind of worship. Now, when it says here that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... Um, this is speaking in a metaphorical sense where it's showing us that the Lord was pleased with the heart of the worshiper. And do you remember when we talked about Cain and Abel and we saw the two brothers that offer different sacrifices to God and we were talked about the fact that the issue was not the sacrifice but the issue was the heart of the one offering the sacrifice. So we learned that there cannot be a divorcing between the heart of the worshiper and the action of worship. What is inside must motivate and come out. So when we read that God was pleased with this, we understand that he was pleased with the heart of the worshiper. And then in God's being pleased with Noah, we read that he goes on and he makes a covenant, not yet with Noah, but with himself. And he says this, he makes a covenant to never again curse the ground because of man. And it's almost as if in that comma, we could insert the words, even though or for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Isn't this interesting here that he would make this promise recognizing that man's heart is evil from its youth. You see, this is a picture both of the depravity of man, the total, complete depravity of man, and then I left off something on your worksheet, and you'll need to add it there. And of the grace and the mercy of God. That's a kind of not a great thing to leave off. I want to make sure you have that. Add on there. It's a picture of the depravity of man and of the grace and the mercy of God, because God is saying, even though man's heart and every intention of his heart is evil, I will never again curse the ground as I have done. I will not do that again. You see, God knows the depravity. He knows the wickedness of man's heart, the inclination toward disobedience, and yet in spite of that, he promises to never destroy the earth again. There will still be sin. There will still be judgment, and yet in that, we will not have the destruction of the entire human race again. Well, in verse 22, he tells us how long would God's promise to not destroy mankind last. How long would it last? Well, look at those first words words there in 22. He says, while the earth remains. You see, the earth as we know it and as it exists right now was not intended to be eternal. It was not intended to exist forever. In 2 Peter 3, it does talk of the further judgment of God that will come on this earth. And after that judgment, God will establish a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, you and I are given a picture of the faithfulness of God as he reestablishes consistent seasons on the earth. We are given a picture of the faithfulness of God. You see, he says this, he says that while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Friends, the fact that you and I have day and night, the fact that every night the sun sets and every morning the sun rises, and the fact that we have weeks and that we have months and that there are seasons and years, though in Naples, Florida, our seasons look slightly different. I mean, there's, it's a little chilly outside, Right? So we have it's we have hot and then we have hotter and hottest, right? Those are our seasons. But we know in other places of the world their leaves change and things like that. But the fact that there are seasons and the fact that the years move on give us an understanding that God is in control. That God remains, remains faithful to his word. And we understand that, the, that Solomon wrote in, the, in um, Ecclesiastes when he said, there is a season for everything. There is a time for everything. There is weeping and there's a time for rejoicing, a time for death and a time for life. The psalmist understood it when he said, weeping remains for a night but joy comes what? In the morning. Friends, as sure as the sun sets and as sure as the sun will rise, you and I can be reminded that our God is sovereign. He is in control over all things and that he remains faithful to his promises. Every time the sun goes down and when you see the sun rise up again, you be reminded, God, you are faithful to your word. He tells us that he will do that In his word right here, he says these things shall not cease while the earth remains. God is faithful to his word. As we see the consecrating of the new world through this act of worship, you and I also see God, though, commissioning a new order. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Teem on the earth and multiply in it. In the commissioning of this new order, you and I now see God's blessing after cursing. His blessing. And God is now setting up the new world, and He gives Noah a recommissioning of sense, in a sense, through receiving the blessing. And the first blessing we see is in procreation. Procreation, he says, be fruitful and multiply. It's one that is repeated from the command God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. And we understand this thing of children being a blessing from the Lord. Children are spoken within a context of blessing and not to be seen as otherwise. The world would be repopulated and filled by Noah and his family. Procreation here was a blessing from the Lord. But not only that, we see God's blessing through protection through protection. Look at verse 2. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. You see, man's relationship to the animals had changed, and some, somehow, somewhere, we see that the animals would now fear man, now, my husband grew up in a family where they liked to be outdoors, and they would go camping, and they would fish, and they hunt, and do those things and that I am not really fully familiar with, to be honest with you, but that was good for him growing up. So, um, the, one of the things his dad taught him was to respect the animals, respect wildlife, and he would say, you know, but son, remember, they're more scared of you than you are of them. And when I was reading this this week, I read this to him, and he was like, that's where that came from came from the Bible, where God established it as such where you and I don't need to be foolish and put ourselves in in the way of the animals and try to mess with them, but in the sense, he says, the fear of man would be in their hearts towards, in the hearts of the animals. Into your hands, he says, they are delivered. The animals are given and delivered to man for man's purposes and not the other way around. We also see God's blessing, though, in this new order comes in his provision, In verses 3 through 4, he says that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now, do you remember in the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman were vegetarians, weren't they? Why were they vegetarians? They only ate plants because death had not yet been introduced into their world. The killing of animals was not a part of the original um, Garden of Eden there. And yet now we see in this new world, God tells them every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So we have both plants and animals for food. In 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, he says this, um, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. Have you ever wondered why you pray and give thanks before mealtime? Because it's a recognition, God, what we have in our table has come from your hand. And we say thank you to you. Thank you, Lord. You see, everything in the animal world exists for you. And God says it so right here. So if you feel the conviction to be a vegetarian, God bless you. But don't blame it on the Bible. Because it's not that being a vegetarian is not necessarily a biblical thing. Because God says, hey, you can have a filet mignon. You can have chicken. You can have shrimp even if you want it. You want some fish, have at it, girl. But he also says, have a salad too because he says, eat the plants too. It's all there for your enjoyment. And isn't our God generous that he gives us such a wonderful variety of things to eat? I mean, it's like such a beautiful picture of the generosity of God. And I like the options he gives us, I really do. But God will get specific on what kind of animals to eat. And he says, you know, when we're talking about blood, much care is going to be given to any discussion there. And in his provision, we see that God also offers them protection because he's saying, don't get carried away in eating the animals. Don't eat live meat. Your meat that you eat must be dead and it must be cooked. Well, why? We also see God's protection in that. John MacArthur points out that God is showing us this because raw meat is harmful to our bodies, carries parasites and amoebas and other harmful bacteria. And he says, be careful in how you handle and eat the meat because it can be harmful. But our author, Jen Wilkins, will take it a step further and specifically speaking about the lifeblood. And she points out that if you're familiar with the Jewish dietary laws, you know that it was required for all of the blood to be drained out of an animal before it could be eaten. Well, why was God concerned with this? In Leviticus 17:14. He says this, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Now, to our ears here, it is a little, a little challenging to follow what's going on here necessarily. A little bit difficult to understand it. But you see, the original hearers of that day would be preparing themselves to enter into the land of of Canaan. And in Canaan there was a practice that they would involve themselves with where they would drink the blood of a particular animal. This is kind of gruesome. But they would drink the blood of an animal because they believed they could acquire its life source and that it would make them stronger and more fertile and maybe give them some kind of spiritual amplification of who they were. And it was a a practice that was detestable to the God of Israel. You see these words here would have made perfect sense to the hearers of Moses' day when he was writing it. But we also see that God finally shows his blessing here as he provides a plan for governing. A plan for governing in verses five through six, we see the establishment of the original law and order. You're familiar with the law of capital punishment. It is set in place right here, and it had not existed before. Remember when Cain killed his brother Abel, and then we have Lamech who was a descendant of Cain who took the life of a young man who, simply for striking him. You see, with no plan for governing in place, evil was allowed to run rampant. Evil was allowed to spread like wildfire. And now God is establishing a lo- rule for governing that would prevent the widespread of sin. But not only that, it would also prevent over-punishment, where, like Lamech, who took the life of another individual simply for him striking him. Now, the world that you and I live in today, capital punishment is highly controversial, isn't it? Where we think, well, do we actually have the right to take someone's life because they took another life? And yet here in the scriptures, it seems pretty clear that God says if a man takes another person's life, his life should be taken also. He uses the word require. When God says, I'm going to requ- I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. The word require was a judicial term in the Hebrew, and it's a term that means compensation, satisfaction, or literally to avenge. He says, I am going to require compensation from you in kind. And why is this so? God gives the reasoning for this, why this must be so. Because at the end of verse 6, he says, God made man in his own image. This is the reason why murder is wrong. Because you and I, whether you like another person or not, we are fellow image bearers of God. And that in itself gives value to life. Fellow image bearers. And then at the end of that verse, we understand that life is valuable to God and He reminds them. So, to you again, I say, be fruitful and multiply. And when He says team on the earth, it literally means bring forth in swarms. Um, One commentary I read noted that in a little over 4,000 years, man's population had increased from eight people to over four billion. Um, I think they took it pretty seriously, right? I did my part with my four. So there there it is. But we will now see that God has not only set up a new life for them in the new world, but he has established something new in his relationship with mankind. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you For all future generations. You realize that includes us too. We are the future generations. He said, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We have an establishing of a new covenant. Did you know the word covenant is repeated here seven times? And we might think, okay, two or three would be enough, right? But God was actually gracious in repeating this promise to him, this word, covenant. You see, the repetition of that word gives strength and clarity to God's promise. And it was so important because do you remember before the flood? Rain had not been a part of their daily reality, rain was not something that they had seen on a regular basis. Noah's only reference to rain was that associated with the deluge, with the flood. And the judgment of God. But in this post-flood world, rain would be a regular occurrence. It would become a normal part of life. But Noah would not have known or understood that. And so as God repeats this word covenant over and over again, he is being gracious to reiterate this promise to him. Well, what does the word covenant mean? In the Keyword Study Bible, it basically defines it as this. It's a treaty an alliance of friendship, a pledge, an obligation between a monarch and his subjects. It was a contract which was accompanied by signs and sacrifices and a solemn oath which sealed the relationship. It was a solemn oath, it was a covenant. You see, no one needed the strength of that promise there. Because could you imagine every time the storm clouds would form and that first raindrop would come and would like hit him on his forehead how he would have been tempted to lose his mind and freak out and run back to the ark and think it's coming again, it's coming. When I was a little girl, we lived in West Texas and we lived in Oklahoma. Do you know what is a normal weather occurrence in those places? Tornadoes. And I can still in my mind hear the sound of the tornado sirens railing and going off. And I was fine when we moved to Naples, and I was like, whew, no more tornado sirens, we're fine. And then I went to college in Tennessee, and in seminary in Kentucky. And in Kentucky, I didn't think they had tornadoes there, but they do. And every time I would hear, again, the tornado sirens, something, fear would like grip my heart, because I was deathly afraid of tornadoes. Um, I still don't love them. I am not a big fan of them, and I, have, I respect their powerful force, <laughs> as in like, "I will run and hide quickly. But with that, could you imagine the fear that would have gripped Noah's heart at the first sign of rain to come? and the things and, but, and yet to have that reminder of God's covenant and promises, you see, Noah needed to hear the repetition. And you and I need to hear the repetition of God's promise to say, I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am the Lord your God. You see, when we are reminded of the repetition of God's promises and we hear them over and over again, it solidifies them and clarifies them in our own hearts. You see, the first thing that we see about this covenant is that, and the nature of it is that God is the initiator of it. God is the one who initiated this covenant. We read, God said to Noah, he says, I establish my covenant with you. It starts with God. But then not only that, the covenant is also universal. He says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Aren't you grateful that all of mankind comes under the umbrella of this covenant? That he says it comes to your future generations too, this widespread promise that's being made. We also see that the covenant is not only universal, it's unilateral. Um, God did not consult man. He did not say, so Noah, I want to hear about your, I'd like to do a little debrief here about your time in the ark. And what your thoughts were about me judging the earth with a flood. Do you think that was benefit? Let's list the pros and the cons. And let's talk. Do you think, no, that's ridiculous. God did not consult man. That's, That's why it's ridiculous when we look at God and we go, God, that's not fair. Why did you do this? You see, he's God and he chooses to work how he does. And he is sovereign over it. It is unilateral. It's a covenant made by one, God himself. But we also see that the covenant, and this is my favorite one. It is unconditional. It is unconditional. When he says, I establish, that word, the Hebrew there, means to erect, to make firm, to make stand solidly. When he says, I establish this, it means it is, my promise is put in concrete here. Nothing you can do will change God's promise. Nothing you and I cannot be do anything in our hearts, attitudes, in our lives, actions that would alter the promises of God. We cannot do it because it is unconditional. You see, God is faithful to keep His promise. He is faithful to His covenant, even when you and I are faithless. Well, in verse eleven, we read what the actual covenant was. God promises to never again drown the world. He says, "No, when you see rain, don't panic." It's okay, I'm going to keep my promise to you. I'm going to keep my promise to the rest of the earth. And just in case you need a reminder, I'm gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna give you a sign. What was the sign of the covenant? We read about it in verses 13 through 16. He says, I'm gonna set my bow in the cloud. This is the sign of the covenant. The word bow there is the same word for a battle bow, a weapon of death and destruction. That is the same word for a battle bow. You you know, like a bow and an arrow that would have have been used in battle there. And John um, Phillips, in his book Exploring Genesis, says this. He said, Its arch is bent like a bow toward heaven, but is a bow without an arrow. The arrow has already been spent. The arrow has already been spent as God's judgment was poured out on the earth. You see, John MacArthur says that God bent his bow in wrath, but from now on, God has hung up his bow, and he hung it in the sky where everybody can see it. Next time you see a rainbow, remember it as a sign of God's mercy towards sinners, a token of his promise. You see, where the battle bow was a picture of death and destruction, we can see the rainbow in the sky as being a reminder that grace triumphed over judgment. And yes, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. When he says, when, I, when that is in the clouds, I will remember, God doesn't need reminders, does he? <laughs> no, but you and I do. You and I need the reminder, and it acts as a sign to us. Well, in our homework this week, we talked about how the rainbow was formed. How does does a rainbow form? We remember that it was what naturally occurs when sunlight interacts with the raindrops. The sunlight is refracted as it shoots through the raindrops and causes different wavelengths of light that then create different colors. Don't you see there is a beautiful spiritual application to this? You and I, when we walk through the disappointing storms of life, When you and I feel the floodwaters of depression coming over to take us under and the harsh winds of betrayal that feel like they blow against us, it is then that we see Jesus who is the gospel of John tells us is the light of the world and we see his character refracted through those storms and we will see parts of his character that we would not have known otherwise. Our author, Jen Wilkins, points out that it is then that we begin to see the blue of his holiness. And we begin to experience the purple of his sovereignty and the gold of his royalty and the green of his eternality and the red of his mercy. She says, we see him in a deeper and richer and broader way than we would have otherwise Many of you in this room have weathered the storms of life and you could stand up and you can say yes and amen to that truth that in that storm that you experienced Jesus who is the light of the world in a way that you would not have otherwise without the storm. You see, it's almost like the storm might be kind of necessary for us to understand the depths of God's character You see, the Apostle Paul knew that when he said, I want to know Christ. And not only know him, he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But to understand that, he said, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You see, to know Christ, we have to be willing to enter into that suffering. And y'all, I will confess to you, I do not like to suffer I don't like it when it's hard, I don't like heartache, and my tendency is just to kind of duck my head and just work, you know, just push through it, you know, rather than look up to see Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You see, the rainbow is given to us as a sign of the character and the beauty of God. When we are walking through those times, we need to look up to see Jesus, to see him His character refracted through the storms of life that are pouring down on us. Man, I so wish we could stop right there. Um, But the story goes on, doesn't it? Because even in this new earth, you still have the same old sin nature. And I was talking with one of the tables before. In my mind, if I could have written this, I I would have written after the rainbow. And then Noah died. And like, just call it right then and there, right? But he doesn't. Because in the new earth, we also see he's living in a new family dynamic. And where more do we see sin nature flare up than in that of those of our closest relationships, right? Well, as Warren Wearsby puts it, the history of Noah and his family now moves from rainbows to shadows. So let's read about it together in chapter 9, Verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So now we see Noah's family life and his three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are the three boys, and that all of the earth would be dispersed through them. Did you know Japheth was actually the firstborn? And, but we, but Shem, we know, because, very important because the Savior, Jesus Christ, will ultimately come from his family line. And Ham, it mentions to us being the father of Canaan. This, again, would have been very important to the original hearers as they were preparing, the Israelites preparing, to enter into the land of where? Canaan. We know that these were the people that stood opposing them in their entrance into the promised land. And it was through these sons that the entire earth was dispersed. We also not only see his family, we see that Noah works as a farmer. In this new earth, he establishes a new occupation, and he works as a farmer. He works the ground. Specifically, he planted a vineyard, and that vineyard gets him in trouble. Let's read and pick up in verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now we see Noah's failure. A man who walked with God, a man who knew God intimately, still struggled with sin nature. And he fell greatly. It's interesting that this is the first place in Scripture where wine is mentioned. And it's in reference to drunkenness. Um, It's just something to think about. I will not expound further on it, but just something for you to take and go, hmm, I wonder, Lord, what you would say to me through that. But we see here that Noah drinks of the wine, and he is drunk, and then his clothes fall off, and he's naked in his tent. He was not immune to a struggle with sin, was he? You and I are not immune to a struggle with sin. If Noah, who walked with God, struggled with sin, what in the world and why in the world would I even dare to think that I would be immune from it myself? You see, he is there, and it's interesting that Noah finds himself in another garden of sorts, and he takes of another kind of fruit, and then he falls our author points out that it's almost as if a second-fall narrative where the father's sin will lead to sin in his son, which will result in another curse on posterity. And we see then two responses to Noah's sin. Two responses to Noah's sin. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. You see, Noah's sin did not affect only him. Ham sins because his father sinned. Now, I am not excusing Ham's sin, not at all. But if Noah had exercised self-control... Ham would not have fallen into sin and then had a curse pronounced on him, as we will later read. But when we see this, we see this pattern of sin. And again, Jen Wilkins points it out. The pattern of sin is this. I see it. I want it. I take it. And it doesn't stop just there. I share it. I see it. I want it. I take it. I share it. You see, sin leaves us spiritually exposed and shamed. Much like the physical state of Noah there in his tent, naked and ashamed. And in the church, the family of God, we can learn something from the two responses here by these boys. And they weren't boys, y'all, they were actually grown men at this time. Ham, we read, is one who exposes his father's sin and pride. He exposes his sin and pride. Now, there's nothing in the scriptures that would imply that anything. Um, Immoral happened between him and his father in the tent that does that's not implied there But what the scriptures do imply is that he came out and that he is mocking his father That he is laughing at his nakedness rather than experiencing a place of heartbrokenness over his father's shame Rather he takes delight in his father's shame He's celebrating the fact that a righteous man fell He's laughing about it, and he's telling his brothers about it, and he's trying to get them to join into his sinful delight there. You see, celebrating the sin of others by laughing about it, by spreading it around through gossip, or even under the guise of a prayer request, is wrong. And we are not called to expose people's sin in that manner, but rather to take a cue from the other two brothers, from Shem and Japheth, and they cover in humility. These are either exposing in pride or covering in humility. You see the picture there was that they would take a blanket, they put it on their shoulders, they kept their faces set forward, they walked backwards, and then they drew, dropped the blanket over their father to cover him. And we read in Proverbs, Proverbs ten twelve says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offense. Covering sin, though, and I want to mention this, covering sin does not mean condoning it. Covering sin does not mean that we excuse it, that we say, well, you were justified in that. Well, they had it coming or any of those things. Covering sin does not mean we condone it. It also doesn't mean that we ignore it. You see, they did not leave. They could have left their father naked in the tent. But do you realize how unloving that would have been? How unloving is it when we know that we have a brother or a sister that is living in sin and that is involved in practices that are destructive to them and destructive for their family and their relationship with Christ, and when we ignore it, but rather the loving thing is to, in humility, cover it. That means we lovingly and humbly confront them and say, I am worried about you because I am seeing these patterns of sin in your life. And I want to call you to repentance and to restoration. That is what the scriptural understanding of covering sin means. It doesn't mean sweeping it under the rug. It doesn't mean pretending it doesn't happen. It doesn't even, and it doesn't mean excusing it, saying it's okay. But love, we read, covers sin. Well, Noah awakens from his drunken stupor, and immediately he is filled with a spirit of prophecy. He begins to prophesy, and he speaks both a blessing and a curse. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brother's. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. What is Noah's response? Well, the first one is we see he speaks the curse of enslavement on Canaan. Do you notice though he doesn't say, Cursed be Ham? He also doesn't say, cursed be the entire family of Ham and all of his sons. But rather, he singles out the youngest son of Ham, and that is Canaan. One son here. And here we see, as our author pointed out, that a father who is shamed by his son pronounces a curse that will cause another father to be shamed by his son. Noah awakens from his drunken stupor, and he's given a prophetic revelation into the future, and he's describing the future of his sons and one grandson on the basis of what he saw in their character. Isn't it true that the smallest sin can have disastrous consequences? We know that later the Canaanite society was one of great moral decay and hardened disobedience toward the laws of God. And it's the descendants of Canaan that we know, again, are standing in the way and in the pathway of Moses and the people of Israelites going into the promised land. And do you know that it is through this word of prophecy that Noah establishes the right of the Israelites to the land itself? This would have been so reassuring for the modern-day hearers. You see, we are told that the, Can- the people of Canaan, they would be servants. And he says it three times. You will be their servants in verse 26, he speaks also the blessing of enrichment on Shem. And not Shem, but it's not the blessing on Shem, but the Lord, the God of Shem. He is speaking a blessing of the Lord. and It was an acknowledgment that whatever God would do through Shem's family line and whatever good came from his family would be because of the blessing and the grace of God. We know that Shem is the ancestor of Abraham. Abraham, who would then be the father of the Jewish nation. And later we see his name in the genealogy of Christ. Do you know where we get the name? Are you familiar with the term Semitic Jews? Semitic, that comes from Shem. We know that that line going straight from Abraham to Jesus Christ himself. And he is saying, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. But he's also speaking a blessing of enlargement on Japheth. In Hebrew, Japheth's name actually means enlargement. It's a play on words here. He's saying, may God enlarge Japheth. We know the descendants of Japheth were empire builders. And we're gonna read in our coming week study about all the different places where they spread out. And we're gonna get to look at the map and see all that they did. The descendants of Japheth were the Indo-European nations. They were the people groups that went to the north and to the east and to the west. And they would colonize these great cities. To say that they would dwell in the tents of Shem means that they would rely on the God of Shem for all things spiritual. Well, we see in Genesis 9, verse 28, that here now we read, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The end of the first genealogy, and he died. How old was Noah when the ark was built? 600 years he lives another 350 years we have no record of what else happened in his life that last one-third of his life the first two-thirds of his life life were worth noting that last third though nothing is said we don't know does he live righteously or unrighteously I'm thinking he was righteous but we don't know it's nothing worth mentioning here He started strong and well, but we really don't know how he ended. Here's my question to you and to me. When you're given a fresh start, a new beginning, will you see it through to end it well? Will you see it through to end it well? Will you steward that fresh start well? When you are given a new job, when you're in a new relationship, when you are in a new ministry area, will you steward it well? Will I steward it well? You see, the Apostle Paul gives a strong word of caution to you and I out of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, listen to these words. He says, Do you know, not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now some of you may have heard that and think, and may be thinking, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a preacher. But guess what? Everything that you and I do proclaims the word of God in one way or another every one of us in our lives is teaching somebody something it is a word yes for teachers from the word of god but it is a word for every single one of us as moms as wives as grandmothers as aunts as sisters as cousins as friends co-workers as friends around these tables it is a word to us do i live a life where what i say is consistent with what i do Am I living a life of consistency before the Lord? You see, we've been reminded today that our God is a God of new beginnings, yes. And he establishes a new order of life and he gives a new covenant to the people. And yet we saw that even in the new life, even in this new place, the same old sin nature remained. Friends, you and I must be women who are people that live under the grace and the mercy of God, where we understand And where our hearts echo with the truth that there but for the grace of God go I. If it can happen to Noah, it can happen to us. People that live under the grace of God and under his mercy, but not only that, we are people who live under the promise of God. Because there will be storms, and there will be difficulties, and there will be challenges. And yes, the storm clouds will come on the horizon, but let me tell you something. You don't have to live in a way where you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop, where you're waiting for the next crisis to happen. You and I can live and be comforted by the promise of God. I'd like to close in reading this promise from the Lord, and I pray that it brings comfort and encouragement to your heart tonight. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you my name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you, sister, walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And can we give a great amen to that promise of the Lord tonight. Let's close with a word of great gratitude to God for his promises. Father, thank you, Lord, for your promises, Lord, to us. Thank you, Lord, for the grace and the mercy, Lord, even though you knew that every inclination of our hearts was evil, before you that left to ourselves, we are completely depraved and wicked and disobedient and rebellious and hard-hearted towards you. Even though you knew that to be true, Lord, you still made a promise to never destroy the earth. And yet even in that, God, you are making a way for us to have relationship with you. A way for us to experience your grace and in your mercy that we, our lives can be hidden with Christ before you, Lord that as we place our faith and our trust in you, Jesus, that we don't have to be fearful of the judgment any longer because, Lord, your judgment and your wrath was absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, I thank you for that. God, thank you, Jesus, for the mercy that you have extended to us so readily. And Lord, for the gift of your grace that you show us through your promises, Lord, I pray that the hearts of my sisters would be strengthened and encouraged tonight. Lord, that if they are living in fear, Lord, that no more would their fear be the thing that resides in their heart. (coughs) But Father, in its place, (coughs) a firm, and steadfast faith, God, that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that, yes, Lord, you are working out all things for our good and for your glory. It is in the great name of Jesus that we pray, and we ask all of these things. For all of God's daughters agree together, and we say it together, amen, and amen, amen. Be blessed. Ladies, I want to remind you, next week, We will not be meeting in this capacity, but we'll have a chance to hear a word from John Avant. You will not want to miss that. Um, And also, but we will be back the following week to finish up this crazy rich study on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And um, we look forward to seeing you then. Um, Be blessed tonight. We'll see you next time.